Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming up. On ABC Radio. COVID-19, Black Lives Matter and an overhaul of the Close the Gap strategy, the highs and lows of 2020. And Wesley Enoch reflects on his time as Artistic Director of the Sydney Festival. As artists, it's our job to prototype the vocabulary, to imagine what the preferred future is and create a pathway to it. And if anything, I've been really promoting that idea and watching lots of other artists take up that mantle has been fantastic. There's a real sense that I'm part of a movement to say artists are central to the way society sees itself and that if we can put a First Nations story into everyone's mind and heart, then we will get real change. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. The issue which dominated the news cycle in 2020 and changed our lives in more ways than one was the COVID-19 pandemic. Joining me to discuss this and the other big issues of the past 12 months is Professor of Indigenous Workplace Diversity at the Jumbana Institute, Noreen Young, and Professor of Indigenous Policy at the Jumbana Institute, Lyndon Coombs. Noreen, what did you make of the federal government's response to the COVID-19 pandemic? Too late, but given that it goes over to the states, I think we need to be talking about how the states have responded and that the states have responded really well and we're incredibly lucky. And if I saw on the news last night that they're going to run out of hospital room in California in mid-December and if so, if you compare how it's been done here based on science and based on the medical advice, we have to say it's done really well. I think the federal government's response in terms of payment was the right one. I think it could have been done a little bit differently rather than give JobKeeper to employers, who and which some have exploited. We now know particularly the large employers like Qantas and, and those large employers should have been given straight to participants rather than employers. But I think overall a sensible approach has been taken. What did you think, Lyndon, and particularly picking up on Noreen's point about the importance of the states here, Dan Andrews copped a significant amount of criticism for his handling of the virus. What did you make of all of that? Yeah, it was a pretty big test, I thought, for Prime Minister Morrison coming off the back of the the bushfires, which I don't think anyone thought he handled particularly well. But as Noreen said, taking his cues from the state and territory premiers and chief ministers, they came up with a very sensible approach. They were listening to their chief health officers and implemented those generally very well across the political spectrum. And it was interesting uh, watching the flack that Dan Andrews took and him being so stoic staying the course, listening to the science and maintaining support amongst Victorians while doing that. So I thought that was a very clear lesson for people. And now Scott Morrison is trading off the success of the hard work of those premiers and chief ministers on the international stage, boasting about how well the country has done with COVID. Noreen, an industry that was hit hard was the performing arts sector, which you keep a close eye on. What does the future look like there? Blake, I think I went to a play for the first time the week before last. It was bizarre sitting in a theatre 
socially distanced and I was thinking as I was sitting there, I wonder what kind of impact this is having on any further income that theatre companies, for example, can hope to make. I sit on two not-for-profit arts boards and both of them were lucky enough to get Australia Council funding. I think the forward scenario for the arts industry is very bleak indeed, given the hit that it's taken. Again, the federal government have been totally slack in not understanding that it's an industry. They seem to have some ideological bent against it. And of course, it includes so many of our performers and artists and people who work in the industry who are legitimate workers. It's not a luxury, it's a necessity in in our country. Lyndon, what were your observations on how remote Aboriginal communities fared and the role of community-controlled organisations? Working in Aboriginal affairs for over 20 years, one of the fundamental principles that I hold is that our people in our communities know what they're doing, given the right resources and the right opportunities, and that proved to be the case with COVID. We have a very long and tragic history with these types of diseases, the effect they have on us, and we clearly took that seriously from the start. The people took it seriously, the organisations took it seriously, proactively shutting down communities, and the results of that have been borne out. It made me incredibly proud and, as I say, reinforced that fundamental principle that Indigenous people do not require the benevolence of non-Indigenous people to handle this and any other issue. So that, I think, was one of the great stories of covid Following the death of African-American man George Floyd, the Black Lives Matter movement was given renewed attention, as was the issue of Aboriginal deaths in custody here in Australia. Noreen, why do you think the death of George Floyd resonated so deeply within our own country? I think because it was so horrific and it highlighted the injustices and indignities that are inflicted on people of colour every day and it was about everyday life and living that and what kind of vulnerabilities African-American men in particular are subjected to in everyday life and I think that highlighted thinking here in Australia about the absolute, it's not a necessity for black people to die in custody and it is been going on for so long since day dot and it is unacceptable and it needs to be re-examined and re-examined and re-examined till it doesn't happen again. So I think that in a very weird year, there's been glimpses of positivity and I think a re-examination of Black Lives Matter is that. What about you, Lyndon? Why do you think it had such an influence here in terms of raising the focus on an issue that the community itself has been advocating on since the year dot? <laughs> Yeah, well, I think it showed that it didn't come out of nowhere, that there was a base of awareness that Indigenous people, our legal services have been talking about for a long time. But I think it was just the vision of that. It was so harrowing, I couldn't sit through more than a minute of it. But the people that did, I think it went for about nine minutes, the gravity of seeing a man killed by figures of authority, I think that resonated here and internationally. And it was interesting that people were trying to say that Australia is not America in that regard, but I think I've said before, we're worse 
in terms of our deaths in custody, in terms of the percentage of our Indigenous population that comes into contact with the police and the, the justice system here. So I think some of those messages started to get across. And I think really effectively, and I think the, there was a really sharp response from, from the establishment, you know, the usual suspects in the media, because that had a big impact on them and they bit back hard. But this movement appears to have a resilience that uh, we haven't seen before. Also a key issue throughout much of 2020 was environmental and heritage protection with the destruction of sacred sites in Western Australia and Victoria leading to significant backlash. Noreen, what was your reaction to the destruction of ancient rock shelters in the Pilbara by the mining giant Rio Tinto? I I think grief is the only way that it hurts that stuff, is the only way you can describe it. In reading the literature or reading press the last couple of days about it, one thing that's really struck me is that I don't think many people, the casual observer, wouldn't be aware that there were negotiations between the TOs and and Rio Tinto in the days leading up to it. How it was reported in the media was that it had just happened. This is ongoing for that particular group, but it, it highlights the dangers of mining and land activity for TOs across the country and the gagging, the recent gagging of the TO group is just extraordinary on the part of the mining company. Lyndon, from a cultural standpoint, what impact do you see those sorts of incidents having on traditional owners? It's devastating, particularly in this particular instance. This was not just another site. 46,000 years old with DNA, very special place for those people. And these things just can't be replaced. And that does lead to grief and anger. And again, this seemed to be a bit of a tipping point. I think amongst the general population, we'd always known I've certainly always known that Aboriginal cultural heritage ran a a very distant second to progress with mining and farming and other infrastructure. But in this case, I think Australia twigged that this is Australian heritage. This is something that, you know, potentially connects us all, that defines country, defines people, defines our relationship to this country. And and while the um, CEO was eventually moved on with, I think, about a $25 million parachute, there was a tipping point that there was some consequences for the people who had done this, some shareholder pushback. So again, I think there was another tipping point just with the significance of this and the impact on those traditional owners that just can't be compensated. Just picking up on that, a controversial coal seam gas project in northwest New South Wales has been approved by the state's independent planning commission despite really strong opposition from Aboriginal groups. Can mining companies ever be pro-environment or in favour of heritage protection and are Indigenous voices ever adequately heard in the process? No. And again, this starts, I think, a broader conversation of where we go as a country economically, as a country culturally, that we need to move on economically from digging things out of the ground and destroying so much value in the process. The world's moving away from that and we're lagging behind. When you look at these types of operations, the devastation to the country is immediately evident and then 
with other operations like the gas project, then the unseen impacts on groundwater, other water, and even in this case, it shows a very clear hierarchy that miners come first, farmers second, and Indigenous people last. Noreen, the unexpected thing about Rio Tinto's behaviour was the consequence. Do you think that that shows that there is a tipping point? Are things changing? I hope so. I thought it was interesting that it was so senior leaders who paid for it with their jobs, but as Lyndon says, with significant recompense in a way that the traditional owners could only dream of. It said a lot about wage disparity and what's valued in this country, I thought, knowledge cultural knowledge as opposed to business knowledge. I hope there is. I think this issue, as Lyndon pointed out, said that it was Australian heritage and that there was a lot of mainstream community that came on board, were very supportive of the traditional owners, and that's a real positive, again, maybe a glimpse of positivity in this year. You're listening to Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt and my guests tonight are Noreen Young and Lyndon Coombs. The 12th annual Close the Gap report was handed down earlier this year with only two of the targets on track, leading to a complete overhaul of the strategy. Lyndon, Aboriginal peak bodies will now have a say in the direction and implementation of the strategy. Is this a step in the right direction? It is. It's a step in the right direction, but it's one of many more steps that that need to happen. Having a look at the rejigging of that, that we're looking at 2050 and even out to 2093, I think, for the justice targets, that's pretty depressing. But I do think it's important that the structure is there, that there is a degree of accountability and measurement around these things. And as I said before, The involvement and leadership of our peak organisations has proven itself time and again, and it took so long for that role to be properly recognised, and I still think there's a bit to go with that. But hopefully that process can be strengthened by the role of of our peak organisations. Noreen, what are the reasons why you think the strategy has failed to deliver so far that we need to address as we move forward? I think the key factor is the lack of co-design approach in the past where it was decided what would happen and how it would happen and there wasn't any involvement in the policy development approach by Indigenous people. In my area of policy, for example, that's still the case. I can't see where there's any approach that involves Indigenous people at all. It's still you know, assumed that this is what Indigenous people need around employment. So I think that it's tragic in a way that we've had these targets for all this time, but it's only now that a co-design approach is being taken. Of course, one of the big issues of 2020 was the US election. Noreen, what have you made of the aftermath? Huge issues there, largely based around race. I was very worried, like a lot of people, about the wash-up, and I still am. It's interesting, a bit of commentary has said that Trump is already starting to run his campaign for four years' time now, and that he'll be running again. Hopefully, the Biden-Harris team can heal the place in some ways, or go some way to healing the place between now now and then, so that we never again see the absolute nasty disaster that was the Trump presidency in any way, shape or form, and that the American people start to understand what they were inflicting on the world. 
Lyndon, what are some of your key takeaways from analysis of the outcome of the US election? Quite a few. Firstly, that the Republican Party appears broken. It has descended into, it looks like a cult, that Donald Trump runs the show. And when I grew up, I used to hear how the US was the greatest democracy in the world and conservatives, Republicans always talked about their institutions, their checks and balances. And um, he came and threw dirt all over them and was allowed to do it and actually encouraged to do it. Uh, And there's numerous sort of pieces of footage of of Republicans who didn't want anything to do with him. And as soon as he got in power, those ideals, those commitments to their structure and to their democracy were put to one side. So where the Republican Party goes from here, I think will be interesting. The other one was that I thought perhaps that the checks and balances weren't as strong or as great as I perceive them to be. And there's a lot of sort of these things are just protocols and Trump is the type of person to say, well, why would I do that? And they say, well, you just do. Why would I produce my taxes? Because people have done that before. What happens if I don't? Nothing. And so we depend on people being responsible and when they're not, um, it causes all of these issues. But should everything work out as it looks to be, that the institutions are actually remaining strong despite a lot of damage, then there is something there for Biden-Harris to rebuild. Well, sticking with elections but closer to home, Queensland went to the polls this year and it saw Anastasia Palaszczuk retain power there. Noreen, what was your analysis of why Labor won that election when it was predicted to be much closer? It's hard to know, isn't it, if the COVID factor is or isn't significant. As was pointed out before, Dan Andrews has withstood the criticism. It seems that Anastasia Palaszczuk's approach to hard borders and to lockdowns has stood her in good stead. I was personally disappointed to see Jackie Trad leave the parliament who has put a lot of effort into a potential treaty up there. I note the last couple of days that there's ongoing commitments that this will still happen and I think Jackie should be acknowledged for the work she did but also around abortion law reform. That was interesting that that didn't take off that particular debate at all. The Labor government stood the course on abortion law reform which is so important. Who knows, maybe people genuinely don't want to change course during the COVID period. Linda, what were your observations? And I'm particularly interested in what you made of the collapse of the One Nation vote. Yeah, look, I'm as perplexed with Queenslanders as I am with Trump supporters. But, you know, Queenslanders describe themselves as Queenslanders. I don't know when I've described myself as a New South Welshman, except at state of origin time. But obviously it was around Queensland issues and they thought that the Premier Palaszczuk did the right thing by Queensland. I think the COVID response was seen up there as a uh, as a positive for her. As for One Nation, I think it's hard to maintain that type of vacuous approach. There's not a lot to One Nation in terms of policy, in terms of direction, values. And it seems to be sliding. They do tend to come back. But there were so many other issues, I think, with this election that 
how small One Nation's vision is, I think, was shown up when there are really serious issues at the table. So, you know, for me personally, it was a good thing to see. A significant piece of research was done this year, which Noreen, you were at the head of in a collaboration with the Diversity Council of Australia. The Gary Yeller report found that 59% of Indigenous workers have experienced racism based on their appearance and almost a third feel their workplace is culturally unsafe. This was the first kind of research done in this space, which in and of itself is extraordinary. From your point of view as the lead researcher, what in the results surprised you? Nothing, absolutely nothing. I have been talking to Mob about work for a long, long time and all of the things that were gleaned in the research were things that are talked about all the time, particularly the cultural, all of them. Nothing surprised me at all. I think some of the comments we got back even surprised me. So use of ABO in the workplace, the level of vitriol with which personal comments are made around appearance racism. Maybe there's a a thinking in the community that says that there's a licence to say those kinds of things with the kind of media commentary that goes on around appearance and Aboriginality. Nothing surprised me at all, Larissa. What's been the impact of the research so far? I think part of the point of working with Diversity Council Australia strategically was to impact on employers because they have nearly 700 employer members and already we've had a lot of feedback from employers to ask us to give them a deeper dive into the research over the next couple of weeks and next year and to inform them as to what their practice should look like. We had over a 1,000 people on the webinar that launched the research. That's a lot of HR and diversity practitioners to be listening. And there's been a lot of buzz around it. And I think that we can keep using it, keep cutting data in an ongoing way, and we'll be doing it every second year as well to track progress. Lyndon, whose responsibility is it to make sure workplaces are culturally safe? It starts at the top, like we were talking about with BHP and the leadership takes responsibility when when we do reconciliation action plans or look at something that's impacted our work this year. I, I know on the back of the Black Lives Matter movement that organisations had been drawn to see how they had approached these issues in the past. And some organisations have been proactive in that, others not so much. But the leadership gets the big dollars, the leadership sets the tone, sets the behaviour for the, for the organisation and that's where it stops. Well, finally tonight, this year has been extraordinary. It didn't turn out how any of us expected it. It's been challenging and we've all learned a little bit more about ourselves. So I thought I would ask both of you what your highs and lows were for 2020 and I'll start with you, Lyndon. The highs were seeing people's resilience, as we talked about before, Aboriginal communities really stepping forward, showing how strong they are, how able they are to do these types of things and really come to the fore in times of crisis. The lows were definitely homeschooling for me. (laughs) Um, I think everyone had a much greater appreciation of teachers and that's probably a good thing too. No bad thing at all. What about you, Noreen? The highs and lows of the last 12 months? Well, I think COVID and COVID, as Lyndon says. So the low, I think, for our family was all been stuck 
in a terrace house and all working and almost killing each other during the lockdown period in Sydney. The high was how well it's been handled, but particularly by Indigenous communities. And despite commentary at the beginning about what it was going to be like and the potential for what it was going to be like, but also community around pivoting around working from home, um, that's been really seamless for us, for example. And all the people I talk to about work, people have just copped it on the chin and mob have just copped it on the chin and just learnt to work around it. So the two phrases of the year, pivoting and you're on mute. (laughs) (laughs) Totally you're on mute. Well, thank you both so much for being with us this evening and sharing your insights. You've emerged as two of our go-to thought leaders along the way, and it's wonderful to have your reflections on 2020. My guests this evening have been Professor of Indigenous Workplace Diversity at the Jambana Institute, Noreen Young, and Professor of Indigenous Policy at the Jambana Institute, Lyndon Coombs. Speaking out with Larissa Barron. The knowledge, the culture, the arts, the language, the law and customs of Indigenous people. On ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia, on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. In a year hallmarked by uncertainty, the upcoming Sydney Festival will provide some much-needed relief to the performing arts sector. This year, Wesley Enoch has unveiled an entirely Australian lineup as he attempts to negate the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Wesley will join me shortly to give us an insight into what's on offer and to reflect on his time as Artistic Director. Right now, though, some new music from Emma Donovan. Here she is alongside the putbacks with the title track from her latest album, Crossover.
That's Emma Donovan and the Putbacks with their latest collaboration, Crossover. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. 
For more than four decades, the Sydney Festival has been a central part of summer in the Harbour City. Wesley Enoch was appointed Artistic Director of the Festival in 2017, and he has put his DNA into the program and delighted audiences with a bold lineup of critical art and cultural performances with a strong Indigenous focus. This year, as he pulls together his fifth and final festival program, Wesley has had to navigate the impact of COVID on the performing arts sector. To tell us all about it, Wesley joins me now. Wesley, welcome back to Speaking Out. Thanks for having me, Larissa. We might just start, obviously, you sit so centrally in the performing arts sector. What did you see as COVID emerged and what's its impact been on the sector? Look, in a positive way, I think that the digital upgrades, I guess we all did, was wonderful because as we saw different barriers for participation slide away. I'm seeing different, you know, aunties kind of getting on FaceTime, connecting with people. Also, I know that Bangara, in terms of digital platforms, was being seen by so many more people. So there were some positive things that came out of it, but some negative things too, I guess, about, you know, art sales, how are we connecting with each other? And we were just finding new ways. I mean, every time that there's been a problem, It's not like that problem wasn't there before COVID. It just was exacerbated and it shone a really strong light on the things that need to change in terms of the digital divide, the health divide in our communities. And the idea that the arts and culture, they're central to our sense of values and our sense of expression of culture. And how do we maintain those when we're being told to stay home? So there's some big, big issues that we were facing. So how are you navigating all of these issues that COVID has thrown at us while you're pulling together the Sydney Festival? What what changes have you had to make? Well, one of the first decisions we made was to go all Australian back in March. And actually, that wasn't that antithetical to what we were doing anyway. There were still lots of Australian commissions and our focus on First Nations was all there. So to go all Australian meant that we were then investing not just our time and energy, but also the money that we have into artists, companies and venues so that we've got over $6 million going into the hands and pockets of Australian artists in a way that we haven't done that in the past. And also the idea of navigating people's psychology, the people who were so scared that they won't even leave their house and those who were so gung-ho that they were going to break every rule to do things. And those extremes have been very interesting. So for us, looking at outdoor performance, I mean, it sounds very First Nations in terms of our own cultural practice, but let's do more things outdoors. Let's do more things in groups that are not about large spectators, but about cohorts of people coming together and celebrating and being engaged in, in smaller groups. So that's been really important, that we're seeing a cultural lens over all this kind of COVID period so that we're seeing it as a way of going, well, why can't we do this outdoors? Why does it have to be inside a concert hall? Why can't we, as we're doing, building a big outdoor performance at the headland at Barangaroo and do a whole range of performances there like Bangara or um, Sydney Symphony Orchestra or different concerts along the way? So for you, what are some of the highlights on the program? That must be an awful question because I'm sure you love all of it, but I'm, I'm asking you to pick a few highlights. <laughs> love all my children equally. That's right. um, well, I guess I was saying there that the headland is one of those big things that it's COVID safe, it's outdoors, and it's also like at 25 bucks a ticket. It's not covering its costs. It's really about saying here's a gift to the city. So the two big things there that I really want to point out is spirit, a retrospective from Bangara which is a great kind of 30-year 
taster, if you like, of some amazing works there. And also the vigil, which we've been doing now. This will be our third year in a row on the 25th of January, asking the people of Sydney to come and sit vigil before the 26th and think a little bit about the impact on Indigenous Australians, on First Nations Australians, of the arrival of the First Fleet. Another big thing was Sunshine Supergirl, which people should really come along to see, which is the celebration of the life of Yvonne Goolagong. So we're transforming Sydney Town Hall into a tennis court. And Andrea James, who's an incredible artist, a writer, director, has brought together an all-Indigenous cast to celebrate her life, the life of Yvonne Goolagong, through tennis, on a tennis court in the middle of Sydney Town Hall. So that's a really fun experience to kind of bring out. And because we're on your show too, I really want to talk about Hide the Dog. Nathan Maynard, who's a pretty extraordinary Palawa artist, has written this family-friendly work uh, with Jamie McCaskill, who's a Maori writer, about an Aboriginal young person and a Maori young person coming together, building a canoe and going on a journey to visit the spirits and the gods of both their cultures to talk about Extinction. Hide the dog refers to the Tasmanian tiger, the thylacine, that's now extinct and how young people need to look after our animals and our, and our places a bit more. I mean, there's a couple of big highlights, but there's lots of things like from Circus, Circa doing Humans 2.0, a fantastic international company that are going to be doing the rounds. There's wonderful intimate works as well. There's a piece called Poem for a Dried Up River, where it's an improvisational opera piece about climate change. So, I mean, there's always something there for everyone. And for me, the joy of Sydney Festival is that it is multiple voices all over the city, from free to low price ticketing to, you know, high art. And that's really a celebration of who we are. And one little thing I'd like to talk about is a free thing called Groundswell. Matthias Shack Arnott has built this six metre wide disc with 100,000 ball bearings in it. And you walk on it and it rolls and tilts around and makes this thunderous sound. And the idea that the more you collaborate together, the better the music can be, the better the percussion can be on that installation at Customs House. And if anything, that's a metaphor for what we need to do now as we come out of COVID, is to think, how are we going to work together collectively to not just solve the economic and the social issues that COVID brought up, but actually, how do we solve climate change? How do we solve or walk towards looking at the inequalities in our community for First Nations people and others and economic opportunities as well? How do we work together for that? So if anything, art has always been that metaphor. Now, this is also your final festival, and we have to remember that you're a Kwandamooka man from Stradbroke Island and a Queenslander because you feel so much a part of the New South Wales scene doing, you know, the uh, curation of one of the key cultural events. What have you enjoyed most about your time in Sydney? Oh, I think that it's, Sydney's great. It really embraces newness. It says, this is something that's new, I'd better get in there and have a look at it. Not just to consume it, but also the idea of understanding new voices or new perspectives. And what I've loved is that it's given an opportunity for a First Nations man, me, to be at the helm of one of the largest arts festivals in the country. And have also then, Sydney has embraced our First Nations programming like anything else. When I first started, people were going, oh, Look, you know, First Nations programming can be hard to sell. And just if our last festival is anything to go by, you know, all the First Nations work all sold out. Every single thing sold out. 
And, you know, we're talking big numbers too. And this idea of saying, actually, if you can see it, you can be it. If you can hear it, you can say it. There's a sense of creating this vocabulary for change that the arts have really been part of. And, and me being here at Sydney Festival and watching Sydney embrace the ideas like the vigil or black ties or some of our larger First Nations work and just going, yep, okay, I think we've made a bit of a difference here. I was going to ask you what you hope your legacy has been during your time at the festival and what you're most proud of. I guess you've touched on that, but what do you feel has been the most profound impact you've had on the festival during your time there? I think that the vigil, I'd like just to pick that one out for a quick second, because this conversation about Australia Day, the 26th of January, and it's a day of of extremes in terms of protest and mindless celebration, that those two things kind of seem to be arguing. And the idea of going, actually, what's the way forward? Change the date, don't change the date, whatever. Or how do we work to be more constructive and go forward? And that as artists, it's our job to prototype the vocabulary, to imagine what the preferred future is and create a pathway to it. And if anything, I've been really promoting that idea and watching lots of other artists take up that mantle has been fantastic. Lots more artistic leaders saying, okay, I can see that this is important. And not that I'm the only one doing it, but there's a real sense that I'm part of a movement to say artists are central to the way society sees itself. And that if we can put a First Nations story into everyone's mind and heart, then we will get real change. Just going back to that point that you've just made about the centrality of artists in our community, obviously the performing arts sector, as we mentioned earlier in our conversation, profoundly hit by COVID. What do you see as the way in which that sector can be assisted in a recovery? Well, I mean, look, we were the first to shut down and I think we'll be the last to really open up properly around the country in terms of indoor work and in terms of theatres and galleries and the like. I think that the real sense, too, of the idea of local has become even more prevalent during COVID and so that this idea of a centralised arts body or a gallery or a company, you start to go, well, what's its role to tour out, to be connected to more communities or, or and to also have local manifestations of arts and culture through art centres, etc. So for me, I think that there's a greater need for more diverse voices, not just big centralised bodies, and also the idea of sharing the work, not just about creating disposable art, things that you go, oh, well, it does one season and then no one else sees it, but actually try to create more of an investment in sharing the work across the country or across the world more. So I think there's not just making new art, but actually making sure it connects with more people. We need more investment in those structures. And as we know, art is one of those really valuable commodities in terms of people's lives and fulfilling people's lives. If you invest in art you see all these kind of economic multipliers that come from that, that people engage in different ways in society, that you're less likely to be left behind if you're engaged in a cultural work. I'm thinking about young people in particular, you know, making sure that they're connected to family and community, that they're not incarcerated or get into destructive modes of behaviour on themselves or the community. And arts and culture is one of those things, I don't know why we're still having this argument, but... We need to say to both 
well, local, state and federal government, all tiers, make sure that your arts and cultural policies and strategies are in place and invest in them because that's how you build stronger communities, healthier communities. And if we keep talking about closing the gap, it's not just about these symptoms. Go for the heart of the disease. Make sure that communities are strong and make sure they've got arts and culture at the heart of it. So for me, a, a big COVID response is to say fund the arts and cultural industries, communities, practices, because that's how we'll get our way out of this. I was going to ask you that because it does twist the question around and the assumptions about how the arts can actually assist in our post-COVID recovery. Yeah, and often people see the arts as a, well, um, many policymakers see it as a drag on the economy when in fact it's one of those glues that keeps things going it's not just about extraction. We think about the extraction industries as a big, important international um, force economically. But in fact, if we think about extraction, about ideas, if we think about mining the conceptual and you know, intellectual frames of society, in fact, you've got more economic multipliers and a greater sense of what's possible. Whereas when you pull something out of the ground and send it overseas, it's one off. Where if you take an idea and grow it and nurture it, you can actually create layers and layers of economic impact of that and also then build a very, very strong community. And if anything, COVID has taught us this. We do need to come together more, not as a single individual, but in fact as communities because that's what keeps us strong. When we work together, we can, as I think Touchwood we're doing, eradicating the virus internally in terms of community transmission in the country. When we work together, we are stronger as a society, as a country, and the arts help glue us all together. You're finishing your tenure at Sydney Festival, which is a non-Indigenous festival, but you've certainly brought an Indigenous lens and perspective to it. Before that, you were at the Queensland Theatre Company and similarly a non-Indigenous company, but you profoundly shaped it with an Indigenous lens and Indigenous perspective. As you come to the end of this period of your career, and you're obviously going to start a new one, what's on your mind and what are you looking at doing next? I also turned 50 in this job, which is, I'm now 51, and there's been this sense of, okay, I've spent 10 years running large non-Indigenous organisations, and as you say, bringing my DNA to these roles, and I've developed networks and skills and perspectives that I now think I need to bring back to the Indigenous art sector. So my big thing is going, take a couple of years of just taking some time out and then going, what do I need to do as a kind of legacy thing, a legacy opportunity or offering to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander arts community? How can I help promote that more? Not as a kind of altruism, but just as a sense of obligation as I come into this next phase of my career. So you know, one of the things I'm doing is going back home to Minjitaba, to Kwandamuka country, and we're looking at setting up an arts centre there with the families and building some more um, social enterprise to replace the sand mining that's now finished there. We're also, I'm, I'm talking about young people a lot more going, how do I work maybe in the university sector as well to help support young Indigenous folk into higher education, into kind of cultural thinking at all the different layers and getting the skills that a university can offer you without giving up your community sense of obligation and, and skills as well. So 
I don't know. I'm in a bit of transition at the moment, Luke. I'm kind of thinking, what do I want to do? And I just know I need to take the time out and focus on what is the next big thing that needs to happen. Well, we'll be watching this space. And when that next big thing emerges, we will have you back on to talk about (laughs) the next adventure that you're undertaking. But finally tonight, how can people find out more about Sydney Festival 2021 and get involved? Well, Sydney Festival, as you know, it's best to get online and check out everything. Uh, sydneyfestival.org.au, sydneyfestival.org.au. And there's a huge program and there's lots of different ways of navigating it. But go through, check out all the things you might want to see from our live music program through to our Indigenous programs and just make a little list and go in then and buy all the tickets online that you need to do. And even some of our free events, you need to register because of COVID safety. You need to register and we'll then send you all the right codes and things you need to do to attend some of our free offerings as well. Wesley, thank you so much for being on the show, sharing your reflections, giving us a taste of what's to come in January 2021 at the festival and alerting us to the fact that there'll be a new chapter in the Wesley Enoch book very soon. (laughs) Thanks, Larissa, and love and respect to you. Thanks, Wesley. Wesley Enoch is the Artistic Director of the Sydney Festival. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. That's all we have time for this evening, but to take us out, we'll leave you with some music from Maisha. Earlier this year, she took out the award for new talent at the National Indigenous Music Awards. Here she is performing Neon Moon with the Warabinda Singers. The sun goes down on my side of town The lonesome feeling comes to my door And the whole world turns blue There's a rundown bar across the railroad tracks At a table for two away in the back Dreams dancing 
drink what I drink And the words of every sad song seem to say what I think And this hurt inside of me That was Myesha and the Warabinda Singers with Neon Moon. That's the show for this year. From next week, we'll be bringing you highlights from the program from the past 12 months. From all the team at Speaking Out, our producers Trevor Dodds and Jay McAllister and myself, we'd like to wish you a safe and happy holiday and we look forward to having you join us again in the new year. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out. Speaking Out.